Hey y'all, I'm Erin Bagwell. And I'm Diana Matthews. Welcome to Beaver Talk, the podcast where we give Hollywood unsolicited advice about feminism. In our world, fame isn't a monster that destroys some of the most talented artists in the world. LGBTQ rights are human rights. And Whitney Houston's bodyguard is canonized as a saint. Join us as we deep dive into all the things that fire us up about film and television. The glorious, the misogynistic, and the groundbreaking. This is Beaver Talk. Yeah. Hi, Erin. Diana's having some technical difficulties this morning with her microphone. Yeah, I feel like it's she's, just one of those situations. Oh, thank you, Kent. She's living her best life. Our producer is just always at the ready to, you know. To make a mic happen. Do whatever we got to do. How's it going, Erin? Good. How are you? Good now. I am so excited to talk about this movie with you because I feel like I've seen you a couple of times since watching it and have really refrained from any conversation about it. I know. It's because, very... And I have no idea what you think and feel, and it is driving me nuts. <laughs> it's like making... I know. It's it's interesting that you watch this, and we like haven't even breathed a word about it. Like mm-hmm. You just told me to like deep dive into it, so I did. And then I was so nervous, because I picked this movie. I saw it on an airplane um, going to Dubai, and I was like, was I in a fever dream? Like, Is this a good pick? like so into it and then was like oh like you need to watch it and then trying to like not convince you to watch it but like trying to send you good vibes like of how great I think it is yeah it's funny I kind of watched this movie um with the like knowing in my heart that it means so much to you and I was just (laughs) like (laughs) I don't even think it's like let's I mean I obviously really liked this movie um but it's not like I Anyway, I, I, yeah, I wanted to know what you thought and felt and was like, felt a little bit of, I was nervous about it. Well, I'm glad that we've come together this morning to do exactly that, to get into Whitney, Can I Be Me? Okay, you're killing me. What did you think? I enjoyed it. I thought it was a great movie. I thought it was a great documentary. The editing was really great. Um, I loved her story. I mm-hmm. love her. I love her talent. I loved hearing more about... Um, her life and just the demise of how everything just went horribly wrong. Yeah, it was such a I thought they did such a lovely job of addressing so many different issues within her life. Um, you know, we as we'll deep dive into all of these things, but I thought they like addressed race head on within like the first seven minutes, which I thought was great. You know, her family life, you know, building her up as this person um, who's really a relatively unknown in the music scene and then watching her rise and watching her fall. I mean, I think they did a really great job of showing the full spectrum and the layers that is this person. Um, and I think one of the shocking things that I found when I was watching it is her relationship, um, with Robin and like, you know, talking about being uh, a gay woman of color, but not talking about it. It was just such a deeply, it's so interesting because, you know, someone had said this in the film, like if she had been a star now, nobody would have cared and it wouldn't have mattered, you know, and to think I, I know sometimes as activists, we think like progression moves so slow, but really it's 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 such a deeply saddening thing to know that that is definitely true and that we, you know, have um, forged um, great strides in LGBTQ rights and we especially within our artists, community, and musicians, you know, it's a a place where they can be seen um, and they can thrive. And it is so heartbreaking to think, wow, this story could have gone differently. 
Absolutely. Let's back up a little bit. Let's yes, talk yes, about yes. so you've discovered this film on a plane to Dubai. Why did you feel compelled to talk about it? Like what was it about it that resonated so profoundly with you? I I thought there were a couple of things. I mean, I'm a huge Whitney Houston fan. Um Of course. I feel like and I think, you know, and I was in New York when she died and I feel like there was such a heaviness to that and actually the day before she died, I got into a fight with a DJ. <laughs> <laughs> as one does always in my youth when i used to i i've gotten to a couple of fights with djs actually why does this not surprise <laughs> me at all <laughs> you know two in the morning too many cocktails and like need to hear want to dance with somebody oh my god and like the dj would not play it and i got into a screaming match with him actually about it and then gave up and like sashayed away um and she died the next day and it was such an intense you know obviously i'm making the story about her death about me but really, I think fans felt like that. Like, they felt so with her. And, you know, she's such a great singer, really, at the heart of it. Like, her vocals and, you know, we're going to get into The Bodyguard and I Will Always Love You. And just to hear her, the strength and the power in that and the vulnerability in that. Um, I don't know. I'm just a huge Whitney Houston fan. So when I saw, I'd heard about the documentary. And when I saw it on the plane, I was like, cool. I, like, can't wait to get into this and watch it. I just really wanted to be entertained and I wanted to hear the music and I just wanted to kind of learn more about this woman mm -hmm. who I admired and really truly didn't know a ton about mm -hmm. you know absolutely yeah it's you know it's funny watching this documentary solidified for me that she had died mm. at the beginning it opens um so we're not spoiling anything it opens with uh her her death and it just names it right off the bat yeah. you know we're talking about somebody post-mortem and um yeah that's what I thought that doing. was such a strong opening, too, it's because there were like, we're naming it. We're going there. This is what happened. And then they also do start with a quote that says she died from a broken heart. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was such a powerful place to start, too, of like there are so many dimensions of, you know, her fame and her relationship with her family and her relationship with Robin and Bobby Brown and, you know, even her daughter. I mean, there was so much heaviness um, to this poor woman's life. And then. You know, once they kind of start from the Beverly Hilton Hotel where she died, they kind of backtrack and go into the 13 years earlier, which is vintage footage. And the cool thing about that is, so this film is directed by Nick Broomfield, who's actually directed 34 films. Wow. Have you heard of him before? No. I hadn't either. Um, I'm sure we've seen his work before. I guess he's like a, one of the most distinctive um, and famous British documentary filmmakers. And essentially, there was a guy named Rudy... Dolzal, and he had compiled basically never before seen footage of the 1999 tour. And Nick got a hold of that, Nick Broomfield, the director, and the two of them kind of started sorting through footage and really deep diving into it. So, you know, it starts with her death and then kind of goes into this really great archival footage, which is so interesting. Like all of it is so good. And it, it adds such a I don't know, a historical relevance doesn't seem like the right word, but there's something really interesting about vintage footage. Yeah. And showing that and showing the tour. And um, I thought that adds such a richness to it. It also is such a huge contrast between, you know, she died at 46 years old, which is mm -hmm. something that really did not hit home until I watched this movie. I was like, oh, my God, she's 46 years old. I know. Um, and seeing her on stage, I think that there's a visual cue there. And this is the power of film. That goes like, how could this have happened to mm -hmm. this person on stage? She's a phoenix. Yeah. Like she is. When they talk about how her body contracts <sighs> like a linebacker as she sings with her full presence. 
you got like full body chills. It was like to hear these musicians, that was a really cool too. They bring all the musicians from the tour back to interview them about, you know, the music and what it was like to work with her. And it was so, um, so incredible just to hear from all these people. Yeah. What I really liked about that is I find so many documentaries about um, musicians can kind of get into the thing of like, you're really talented or like she was just so good or like, you know, like it's very surface level. And they were like naming like notes she was able to hit and they were naming the saxophonist talks about how like she would always play around with tempo and like they were constantly like in awe of like what her range was able to do. And yeah, um, it got very technical, got very technical. And there was such an admiration for her um, that went far beyond like record sales and all that kind of stuff. Like they just said like, she's literally the best voice we've ever heard right? ever. And we ever will hear. So from the bat, I was like, first of all, internalizing, because I don't even remember her death, which I feel really, I feel really guilty saying that. Mm-hmm. And I was talking about it. Um, I was thinking about it when I was watching the film and I thought like, you know, I remember Michael Jackson's death. He passed away when I graduated uni- or when I graduated high school. So it was all like, it was all I was listening to that summer. It was like constant, you know, coverage of his death. Mm-hmm. But Whitney Houston, I feel like there was this inevitability. Mm. Everyone knew it was coming. And they talk about this in the movie. Yeah. Everyone knew she it was, was coming. Not well. She was not well. Mm-hmm. And something that um, my boyfriend named is he said, I said, why wasn't it as big of a deal as Michael Jackson's death? Like, what was it about this mm-hmm. that she did not get the same treatment in the press? And he talked about, you know, we, we don't support women in domestic violence situations. There's such a shame. There's such a stigma around it. She was a drug addict. Mm-hmm. I was like, so was Michael Jackson. Like we were kind of talking, you know, t- it was right. an interesting conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I felt really guilty watching this film that I really didn't know a lot about it, a lot yeah. about her death. I knew about her career, as we all did, of course. But that's something this I really enjoyed in this film was not enjoyed. That's not the right word. But I really learned in this movie mm-hmm. was kind of the trajectory of her life and how it all came down i thought one of the other interesting things is like you know they give space to like the musicians and the people of her life to really share her story but she also has such a voice in it Mm -hmm. and she really sets the tone and you know we see footage from her she does voiceovers at some points they really do a fabulous job of letting her tell her own story which was so magical and so lovely and you know as just kind of someone watching she was so charming and she was so full of life and joy Um, And there was such a pain to that of like, this is so bittersweet to like, love this woman and to hear about her work and to know like where she is. is just, it was a really interesting film. Yeah, I read a, I read a review um, in prep for today's episode and it talked about how they might as well put a camera like up one of her nostrils because it was so intimate. Like you felt (laughs) like you were like sitting on her lap when like the interview footage was rolling or you felt like. All this behind the scenes stuff, you know, she's giving these little like side eyes to the camera and she's smiling and she's like kind of always aware that she's being filmed, but it's extremely intimate coverage. Yeah. Even the film, even the footage of her on stage, it's like. It's very close. Right there. Right. And I feel like that was something that we were missing from the Lady Gaga film was that this film to me felt like it was made with so much love Mm -hmm. and so much admiration. And something that actually really shocked me is that the director said that he doesn't know a lot about his subjects before he starts, which I thought was really interesting. So we have kind of a similar situation, you know, as the Lady Gaga documentary where someone kind of just enters into that world 
and doesn't really understand it. And it felt very disconnected in a lot of obvious ways. And Beaver Talk listeners can go back and listen to our five foot two episode, you know, but it, felt, it was really interesting that Nick clearly did the work and fell in love with this woman. Um, and he wrote about doing the editing. Let me just find this quote um, where he basically talks about that he would, I can't find the specific quote in my notes, but basically that he would, him and the editor like cried mm-hmm. a lot making this movie. That they just, first of all, they fell in love with her and then they continued to just be gutted by what happened and how it happened. Um, and I thought that was really evident. Like, I feel like you can, one of the reasons that I wanted to watch this movie and talk about it is I feel like as a, a creator and as a director, like you can feel when somebody loves their work and they love the subjects. And they're trying to convey a certain emotion or feeling. And I felt like you could really get that from this film. Yeah, absolutely. I think there was, he was sometimes, you know, portraying from the place of a fan. He was sometimes portraying from the place of a friend. He was sometimes, you know, he occupied all of these different spaces without it sounding, you know, completely over the top, emotionally draining. Yeah. Um, He had a really nice note of just like the heartbreaking reality of what this was. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was also echoed in the interviews that, he had with everybody is they all kind of played along on that theme. But I agree. I think that unlike it also had a better arc than the Gaga doc, you know, there's such a clear arc to telling Whitney's story, Whitney's mm-hmm. story. Yeah. Um, and the payoff in the Gaga doc, not to dredge all of this, but <laughs> it wasn't, a, it, I didn't believe it. Mm-hmm. I didn't believe that the Super Bowl was this like incredible, huge thing. Um, that really meant anything. Yeah. And maybe it did, but the movie didn't show it as that. And so I think that showing her leading up to her death and how many people tried to step, how many people tried to oh help my God. her. Oh my God. Can we talk in. about her bodyguard? Can we talk about him? Oh my God. I am obsessed with this man. Oh so, I, so I watched it obviously on the plane and then I watched it again, you know, at home to make notes for, um, to, for today. And I literally like, I can't remember. I'm here, my notes love him it just like exclamation point exclamation point like the intensity that he brings first of all he like gives zero fucks and like when you're interviewing him like you can tell sometimes people are like holding back or whatever and he is all on the table and he wants the truth to be known and he wants people to know that he stepped in and he tried to get her help and like that she tried to get herself help that was one of the most painful parts of the of rewatching. it was like wow, not only did people try, but she tried. And like the venomousness of the community that she had around her was so bad that it was so destructive. Um, And I I am like, his name is David Roberts. I'm like obsessed with this man. I know I have David Roberts written in my notes as well. (laughs) Um, I think that the exploitation, the way that this became totally exploitive of a massive talent. Um, And there's a part where they talk about she's a human being. Yeah. And they have state footage of her going backstage. You know, she's wrapped in towels. She's toweling off. She's having um, something to drink. And she just looks drained. When she starts crying, is that the scene you're talking about? Yeah. She gets off stage I... and she's bawling. Yeah. Um, but he says, and this is a quote of the Lifetime, David Roberts, who is her bodyguard, says, there isn't one person who isn't responsible for the demise of that beautiful woman. Hmm. You know, we there's such a shared ownership and a shared failure of every single person who was ever in her life. Yeah. That let this happen. So I before we kind of dive into the demise of it, I would also like to give people like an idea of 
like the film's arc. So we start off and basically we talk about like her like growing up in Newark and like her upbringing and race. And we talk about the way she was um, shaped in the media. How, who was the guy who produced her? Clive. Clive Davis. Clive Davis wanted her to be like no R&B. They wanted her to be totally whitewashed. Like they were very intentional about her being a pop musician. And we kind of watch her rise to fame which is really fascinating. We, we learn about her relationship with her parents, which is very com- a very complicated situation. And then to your point, like, then all of a sudden she's at this place where she's making tons of people money. She had more number one singles than the Beatles. And then this, like, tightness around, and the reason that they, the film is called Can I Be Me is because she used to say it all the time. You know, when she would want to make the R&B record and when she would want to do certain things. And like the it's interesting, like the fame as like a, a cage, really. And I, you know, to compare Justin Bieber for like with the Whitney stuff and the Kanye stuff, it's like when you're at a level where you're paying for, you know, 200 people's salaries, nobody wants you to leave the stage. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants you to check out and go into rehab. Nobody wants you to like take a mental health break it's not safe to do so there's way too many people relying on you and there's way too many you know it's such a it's such an interesting thing to just see how she was totally packaged and brought up and brought through by clive davis got all these awards got all these number one hits um and then lost the support of her community Mm -hmm. the support of the black community yeah and there's a scene where she's booed at the soul train awards can you even imagine booing whitney houston Oh, it's so devastating. I can't even imagine. So they play a clip from one of her videos and she's literally booed. And it's on that night that she meets Bobby Brown. I know. She met him at a time of pain, at a <sighs> moment of pain. Right. It's, I mean, it's like Greek. It's, it's like, you know what I mean? It's so poetic. I know. But that happened that night. And I thought they did a really good job because I, you know, I, I feel like I, we don't know the history, or obviously now we do, but I feel like I've always hated Bobby Brown mm-hmm. because I associate, you know, Whitney's demise with him. And I yeah. thought they did a really beautiful job of showing, you know, obviously there is so much wrong with him, <laughs> um, but I thought they did a good, and that's the narrative we know. We know him as like the villain and the drunk and the abusive husband and, you know, the f- like cheating on her and all that stuff. But I thought they did a really good job also of showing how she felt seen by him mm-hmm. and that there was like a love there and like what their relationship was. And, um, you know, they show, which is kind of a disturbing scene of them like reenacting. Um, What's love got to do with it? Yeah. Between Ike but, and but there's also like such a joy to it of like them playing, like there's such a playfulness to their relationship that you, that was very relatable. And also I think that's what makes it so scary. Yeah, people talk about how they like didn't know how to react to it mm-hmm. because she did feel so seen and she did seem so happy. Yeah. And there seemed to be this, you know, two megastars coming together. There's a certain level of they get it. Understanding. There's stuff they don't have to explain to each other, I'm right. sure, that they would have to explain to other people. Um, so, yeah, I thought it was interesting. I could have done, I'll be honest, I could have done with a little less Bobby Brown. Mm-hmm. I could have done with a little less explanation about Bobby Brown. Okay. Um, I I knew that story. That story yeah. to me was something that's been told. It's been like played out. Yeah. Um. So I kind of wanted the film to get back to her. Yeah. Um. But obviously they became it's so... such a big part of her story, though. Yeah. But it, it there was a lot of renaming, like mm-hmm. a retelling okay. of like, this was Bobby Brown. This was Bobby Brown. This was yeah. him. This was just he was a bad boy. She was a good girl. Da, da, yeah, da, da. Yeah. I was like, yeah, no, I get it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we know why this happened. Let's talk about Robin. Yes. 
let's talk about Robin. So this was Whitney's best friend. Mm-hmm. Slash. Since like grade school. Right. Slash art director or creative director. Creative director. Mm-hmm. And they were inseparable. <sighs> I mean, I think one of the heart- the heartbreaking things about like, so basically, you know, there Robin is this woman who's like in Whitney's life is her right hand person. You know, they clearly have some kind of intense like an intimate relationship, you know, there's speculation about her being gay. Um, the tabloids kind of get a hold of the fact that Whitney might be gay. And basically her, I mean, we're, we're going to project a little bit, but her mother, her PR machine, Clive Davis said, like, absolutely not. We're not doing this. This well, is Bobby a- Brown said, get out. Bobby Brown cut it. Well, for I mean, I think that Whitney may had been told before Bobby Brown entered the picture that she was not allowed to be herself and right. she was not allowed to express this. So Robin kind of went to the side of her relationship and was still a huge part of her life and her business, but it wasn't allowed to take up a romantic space, which, which leave left room for somebody like Bobby Brown to come in. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it's really interesting, you know, when they talk to her mother and Oprah and they have that sit down about like, you know, would, what if Robin had been her partner and what, you know what I mean? And basically her mother being like, absolutely not. Like, I don't, I don't believe in it. My religion doesn't believe in it. And we would not have accepted her, mm-hmm. um, which I think is the really devastating underlying part of this is like, if we had allowed this woman, you know, to, to be involved in this romantic relationship, then, you know, obviously the speculation is, is that she would still be with us. This romantic relationship that brought her so much joy mm-hmm. and like the second part that's really upsetting about that interview with Oprah and us and Whitney Houston's mother, Sissy, um, is that, you know, Oprah says, okay, well, what do you think about Bobby Brown? Were you happy about Bobby Brown? And her mom's like, no, it's like, no matter what, like Whitney Houston was just supposed to entertain us all. And she was never supposed to have any kind of human need. Mm -hmm. She didn't need a partner. We just, we wanted her to entertain us. Like her relationship with her mother was so distressing in so many ways too and i feel like you know we've talked about like kim and chris's relationship and how chris really is a person who wanted fame and sissy was a person who you know i felt to the same way like kind of resented her daughter and resented the fact that she stole her singing style which is what she says in the film um and that was really really hard to hear uh and even her relationship with her father and i'm kind of jumping ahead to the end a little bit but like basically you know, we we show Whitney, we show kind of her demise, you know, drugs are obviously like a huge part of really what keeps her kind of checked out of all the pressure, it feels like. Well, what I thought was the most interesting part, or one of the most interesting parts is how drugs had always been a part of her life. Mm-hmm. You know, they talk about her doing drugs with her brothers, and her brother said, you know, I took heroin when I was 10. That's so crazy. I know, but that's something that I, and that's a... Um, I don't know if it was just a fallacy perpetuated by the media, but she did not become a drug addict when she got famous. Mm-hmm. She was doing drugs and taking drugs very early on. Mm-hmm. And that problem was there and that problem existed. And fame, I mean, as we all know, only has a condition to exasperate these kind of problems. Yeah. Um, so I thought that was really interesting that I, I learned from the documentaries that this had always been a problem for her. Right. Um, and nobody did anything then, you know, like there was just all these moments where she was just expected to be this machine mm-hmm. who didn't need any well, love, didn't think, need anything. Yeah. And one of the painful parts is that like when she started getting help and when she started setting boundaries and saying no, that's when Bob, like that's when her relationship with Bobby Brown really fell apart when she started mm-hmm. creating boundaries and like stopped doing everything he wanted. And it almost felt like he wanted her to be bad. Like 
to be in a controlling place where she would, again, to your point, be the machine and be. There was such a, there was such a desire to keep her both constantly moving forward as this like robot, but Mm -hmm. also codependent and dependent on Bobby Brown. Absolutely. And controlled by people and, and really held off in this isolated little space, which we've seen time and time again with a lot of performers who have had similar circumstances, but there's something about this film because it is such an intimate look. Well, and I think we know the outcome. You know, I think if we had told this story, you know, to anybody else who's currently an artist right now, it wouldn't have, it wouldn't hit as hard. Like we know the consequences of this and they're so dire. And and even to hear, you know, about her relationship with her daughter, that was another gutting part is like, you know, she's have this relationship with her daughter. And at one point she's doing these really intimate interviews and she's she's tearing up and crying and she's like, you know, we only get to see each other a couple of months of the year. And you're just your your heart drops. And she's like, I just I'm overwhelmed by how much I love her. And that, like, sometimes it's harder, you know, to call and to have that space and to name it than to not call at all because you have to say goodbye. And I was like, oh, my God, like her relationship with her daughter was um, really, really powerful. Well, and the outcome of her daughter is also oh. what. So heartbreaking. Is the additional layer of sadness on mm-hmm. this film. Yeah. Um, and when David Roberts, our favorite bodyguard, says, you know, that kid, Bobby Christina, never had a chance. Mm. The kid never had a chance. I mean, he just has, he just goes there. He right. just, like, I'm tired of talking around everything. I'm well, tired of Well, I think he it. feels so much responsibility because he basically, in the film, he writes a letter to the family and to the business owners. And he says, listen, she's not well. Here are the people who are giving her drugs. Here's the drugs that she's doing. Here's how she's getting them in and out of the country. He writes it all down. He names it. And he's let go. Mm-hmm. And it's like, wow. Yeah. Thank you. We no longer need your services. <sighs> and then to hear at the end that her father sues her for $100 million, basically on his deathbed. You know, this man that really is her closest ally in her family that he turns on her for money is just it's like icing on the cake of this woman's, you know, horrible experience. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I know it's it's a big one. And I think that. But I will say, you know, we are talking about the devastation, the devastation, you know, <laughs> being gutted, being about. But in between these, this really intense story are moments of pure joy of, of her performing. And I think they do a beautiful jo- job of showing, you know, the songs and the music and letting the music kind of breathe through these moments where you're like, wow, this woman is such an icon. And like for her to thrive and rise and, you know, and obviously at the end, not rise all the way, but we, we do create space for her to be this magnificent performer and artist. And, you know, at one point they talk about kind of, how trans transcendent her her craft is, and um, it, it, so it 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 is there is a lot of heaviness to it, but there is also so much joy and love. Yeah, there is, and I and I love. Um, there's a scene that's I think it's just like home video footage of her in a cat in the hat shirt. Yeah, and she has all of her girlfriends over at a hotel room, and all of her girlfriends are I think they're her backup singers, but they're yeah. all harmonizing. Mm-hmm. And she is just standing there. She has this huge smile on her face because of course they sound amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and she starts singing with them and just harmonizing with them. And I'm just like, that's it right there. Yeah, this woman is like she literally has her hair like rolled up and she 
is not wearing any makeup and she has this cat She's in the got, hat like, on and like yeah. a cat in the hat like sleeper jamma thing it's yeah great. and there's like takeout boxes everywhere and it's just like this woman with the voice that mm-hmm. you know you could be you could identify it from anywhere yeah it's amazing i also love that kevin costner made them drop out the musical verse in the beginning of i will always love you why was that given so much space why did we bring david foster in to talk about that <laughs> that would for i was like okay great is it just because it's so iconic perhaps and we need to give a white guy credit for this yeah probably <laughs> it made 411 million dollars worldwide and it is the best-selling soundtrack of all time i mean yeah so good what are your thoughts on the bodyguard I got a lot of thoughts on the bodyguard. Share some of them. I know that it's, uh, I know we talked, it's funny. We didn't talk about this film, but we talked extensively about the bodyguard. <laughs> I've never seen it from beginning to end. I don't think you need to. It jumps like the shark like seven well. minutes in. <laughs> I'd like to redo it, actually. It could be done well, but they, it's just really wonky and doesn't make any sense. It doesn't feel grounded in anything. Um, but she's phenomenal in it, and she should be in it more. It's, it's a movie about really Kevin Costner, mm. which is a shame. But the audio in it is pretty interesting. How's like, the audio <laughs> interesting? You know, like a film they, is bad when you're, like, paying attention to the audio. Yeah, I'm, like, trying to give them some. Well, I mean, sound design is very important. But Absolutely. I will say, like, they're, they're, you know, it's all about, like, the stalker who's, like, coming to get her. And, and sometimes they'll do this thing where you can hear it before you can see it mm. whenever the stalker is coming. You know what I mean? So, like, you can't, it kind of throws you off guard. of Like, ooh, I can feel, like, he's around, but I don't know where he is. And yeah. That was... That was well done. Well, great. I'm sure that's never been talked about in the context of The Bodyguard. I feel like there are about a million things we talk about other than that, but I love it. I love it. It was really, that movie is, you could watch it if you're like sick or something or you're home for the holidays and you're really bored. Yeah. But don't dive in. Right. Don't expect to be like, it's going to take you anywhere. Kevin Costner's not not for me. Yeah. I love her, but Kevin Costner's not for me. She's great in it. I believe it. I've seen it. I just haven't seen the whole thing. Um, I thought one of the other things about this movie that was really <laughs> crazy was like her hair, her relationship to her hairdresser and how her hairdresser continued to like support her and love her and like till the end tried to get her help. I thought, you know, I really loved hearing her story and just feeling her pain of like being a friend who cannot help. Yeah, I could have given the hairdresser a little bit more space in this film because mm-hmm. I feel like she said that and it kind of blew under the radar a little bit. Um, you know, she's talking about like when you're gonna like she talks about doing her hair and she's like, You're gonna kill yourself. Yeah. Um which is just such a I can't imagine how all of these people who were close to her felt yeah when this happened. Um, but yeah, I loved and I loved um there was somebody else in, oh, her bass singer. The woman who uh was talking about um just able to name like the way that she was chipped away as a human being and she saw it happening all the time yeah um and she said there was just nowhere to turn no nothing to say like no one to say anything to um it just felt like we all had to like keep the machine moving forward i also love how they gave her so much like historical context of like this was a woman of color that like broke barriers in like such a such a way that like we would not have Beyonce Mm -hmm. you know like she just the like the naming of how much space Whitney took up and how powerful she was as an artist and a role model and just all of those things you know I I thought that was really lovely to hear too and have somebody name and I think that was the saddest part is at the end when they were like her legacy is that people you know to your point earlier were like they were expecting this and Mm -hmm. we just kind of now treat her as this 
you know, person who suffered this drug addiction. And, you know, we put a lot of blame on people who go through those experiences. And it was like, no, this woman was the greatest singer, is the greatest singer. You know, we haven't heard anything like this in our lifetime. We need to give her the space she deserves. Yeah. And we need to talk about it. And I think that that's something that made me really sad when I started looking into and researching this movie is it only made $7 million. Mm. There was no promotion for it. There was no distribution. Premiered at at, uh, Tribeca. Yeah. And from there, we made like $10. (laughs) I mean, this movie should be shouted from the rooftops. Like, why is her story not being told everywhere? Yeah. Um, As opposed to the Gaga documentary. But um, that's something that made me sad, you know? Like, I think that Whitney Houston's story is very important, especially given um, the history of her as a black woman and where we are with Beyonce and how we hold up Beyonce to this, like, untouchable place but it's like there Um, were people who came before her who set this up god bless beyonce i mean yeah every day she's doing great she really (laughs) what's she doing she doesn't need me to tell her we all know but just if you're listening we'd love to have you over at beaver talk (laughs) you're doing great you're doing great just want you to know you are doing great i i feel so much admiration and so much um it gave me such a different perspective and i love kind of conversations around fame and like what success does to people and like the battle with that and like what it takes from you and like all of this. And I thought that this film did a really good job of addressing it in a real way. Yeah. And I think it also acts, it also answers the question that she asks, can I be me? And the answer is no, Mm. not in this life. Right. Which is the very, it's the most powerful part of this documentary is that it shows how much she could not be herself. Mm -hmm. A voice I really wanted to hear from was Robin. I wish at some point yeah. we had heard from Robin. Right. Whether it be an interview with well, we the director. Well, we see a little bit of archival stuff with her. And a we see bit. her, you know. But I think they also kind of wanted to give her. I hear, I would have loved to hear from Robin. I'm mm-hmm. making excuses, but they obviously couldn't get her. Well, yeah. I think she's profoundly moved on with her life. She has a partner and twins. Yeah. Which is really amazing. Robin, hope you're doing great. I know. But I think, and I wonder if there's a little bit of mythology they wanted to create around Robin about like. You know, she gets to exist mm-hmm. as the person who was not a part of this sideshow. And also, you know, she walked away and that's her decision and those are her boundaries. And, you know, she doesn't need to be in this movie in, in some spaces as well. You know, it would have been great from a storytelling perspective, but I also understand the pain of that and not wanting to revisit that. Mm-hmm. So I only have one criticism of this film. I have two criticisms <laughs> of this film. Um, the subtitles, the grammar was wrong. Did you notice that? No. They were like a couple of... <laughs> and I'm like not a gram... gram-, gram- <laughs> She's not about that gram... Gram... gram. Uh, words. Um, <laughs> yeah. It, it was... I don't know. It, they were wrong. Like, the way that they worded stuff sometimes, like, was very weird. Like, they had written it in, like, five seconds and forgot about it. It was oh. very weird. Um, and then at the very end, I really wanted them to continue to play out that song. Yes. And they oh did my it. God, yes, and I couldn't I know. figure out, you know, here we have this beautiful story. The film is fantastic. And it almost felt to me like director's fatigue of like, wrap it up. Yeah. No, play that fucking song out. We want to hear the music end on a big high note. And they, for some reason, they kind of, they played it for like 15 seconds and then dropped it. Yeah. And I couldn't figure out why. I Give know. us a montage. Give us like, I'm Every Woman is such a powerful song. Let that shit play out. We also hadn't heard at that point, I want to dance with somebody fully. I wonder if they couldn't get the rights to certain music. Yeah, it kind of felt like we had bits Because and they definitely ha- have been sued. Oh, <laughs> The really? director has been sued, yeah. By who? By her family. They didn't oh, want her to tell the story. 
Shocking. That's shocking to me. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I learned what I love about this documentary is I learned a lot from it. I didn't know a lot about the subject. I mean, we all know who she is, mm-hmm. but I learned pieces. And I think that's something that's as a popular culture junkie. I love to learn more about the people. I mean, we need to pay tribute to these women of color who are mm-hmm. like iconic. Mm-hmm. And everyone think, should watch this movie. Yeah. And I think that the homosexuality piece, you know, the drugs weren't a problem, but being gay was. Mm-hmm. We were totally fine with the drugs and her being addicted to crack, but just don't be gay. Right. You know, there's such a, we take, we take that conversation for granted sometimes and we need to, I think it's always worth revisiting to talk about people who still live in these realities mm-hmm. and still are not able to fully be themselves. Right. Whether you're working, you know, as an accountant or you're Whitney Houston. Yeah. I think the conversation about identity and the conversation about being your fullest self is always worth having. And I think that's one that this documentary really starts. I love it. Where can you watch this film, Erin? You can watch it on Showtime. Um, They're doing a seven-day free trial right now. So if you sign up for, basically, you can sign up and then watch the film and then drop your account. So that's what I would recommend you do. Unless you're a real big Showtime person, then... Carry on. Then you don't have a reason to not watch this film. And if you do watch it, we'd love to hear what you think about it. We'd love for you to drop us a line and let us know your thoughts. Absolutely. And while you're doing that, can you write us a goddamn review for iTunes? Because we don't have any. Ask nicer, Erin. Let's get get some uh, (laughs) reviews up there. We'll read them live. Live. Whatever this is, we'll read them. The ratings only work if you give five stars. Otherwise, I don't know what (laughs) happens to them. So you got to really punch in those stars. Excellent. I love it. Thanks, Erin. Thanks, Diana. Thanks, Kent. Sing it out, Whitney. If I should stay, I would only be in your way. So I'll go. But I Hey guys, I'm Lissa Mandel. I'm Philip Cassell. And we're here from The The Bitch Bitch Seat, the podcast. It's an interview show where we talk to guests about the horrible and beautiful parts of their youth. We like to think of it as an adult talk show and tell. A grown-up show and tell. There you go. Like that. So for a teaser, here's some magnetic poetry that I wrote on my fridge when I was 12. Hit it, Phil. Dreams of whispered music felt snow white and lathered me in delirious symphonies. The ache within is black and bitter. A thousand frantic shadows scream and chant bitterly. I sleep on a lake of a thousand diamonds. You were 12? Yeah, I was way ahead of my time. Fair enough. This has been an Atlantic Transmission production.